Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Welcome to the 50s. I know, by the time this episode is released, I will be joining you, you in middle age. You don't look a day over 50. <laughs> <laughs> Do I look many days over 50? No, you don't look a day over 50. Have you got any advice for me as an older man who's already been through it? Lean in. 50 feels old to me. Really? 30 bothered me, 40 didn't bother me, and 50 didn't really bother me that uh-huh. much. I like the low numbers. I like the second number being a low number. Oh, so once you get into 51, 52, yeah. 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 It's when the second number gets higher that I don't like. Do you know what do? I do. It's a little bit irrational, but... I do. I thought since I'm sitting here very yeah. much still in my... Uh, what do we used to go? Still in my borderline millennial 40s. Yeah. Um, I thought maybe I, I could just record something for my future self. Yes. For posterity. Go Almost on. like a time capsule. Yeah, go on. Have you, have you ever buried anything in a time capsule? No. What would you put in there? God, you've got me stumped. I don't know. Red Sox hat. What would you put in there? Maybe the remains of that defective mug you bought me for Christmas. <laughs> for future archaeologists. What, the vegan to... cheese set? <laughs> anyway, so I'm going to record a little message okay. for, for okay. my future self here. Okay. My 50-year-old self. Okay. From my 49-year-old self. When so. are you going to open it? I don't know. Okay. I'm when I'm 50. Okay. Hi. Remember me? I'm you, only less downtrodden and and blissfully unaware of underlying health conditions. I don't know whether I'm supposed to talk in this time capsule or you're supposed to just... I feel feel like if there's a pause... Right, okay, fine. I don't want to get in the way of your time capsule. No, but I also think the listeners don't like it if they go more than a few seconds without hearing your voice. Yeah, okay. Yeah. They say the past is a foreign country, and I'm sure that all our pursuits and concerns seem trivial to you. By your time, I'm, I'm sure you'll have averted the climate crisis and... Humanity will be living in a UBI-funded paradise. Can, can I ask you a question? Yes. Did ChatGPT write this? No, this is me. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Do you think it's as good as ChatGPT? <laughs> Almost. Almost. <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask my future self a question here. Yeah. Are you uh, are you still in touch with Ed? <laughs> I mean, he must be uh, at least the UN Secretary General by now, if not World President. Either way, I'm sure he must be out of that career trough that saw him reduced <laughs> to making a podcast with a loser. Anyway. Happy 50th. You got this. And whatever your wife says, I think it would be okay to start using a, a subtle hair dye. Many happy returns. Past you. Oh, Was that very, moving? Very moving. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to open it on my I, birthday. I now feel, I feel like I'm not, I'm letting you down a bit by not giving you any advice. What about some resolutions? Yeah. What do you think my resolution should be? Fitness. Is <laughs> <laughs> this a bit of your greens? It's probably right. I'm extremely sedentary. A hobby? You've got quite a lot of hobbies. If you count constantly editing podcasts as hobbies. Well, no, but okay, but that's this is like a particular period. But you're a good man of leisure, aren't you? Yeah, not... I sort of live vicariously through my seven-year-old. I think that's a bit unfair on you. I think you, you're good at sort of pursuing leisure. Yes. You're a big walker. Yeah, but maybe I'm going to get myself those sticks, those Nordic walking poles. 
I'm seeing myself in a shell suit. I've got two of those poles, very, very padded trainers and maybe um, a bum bag. It's a perfect vision. Look out for me. I feel like I'm not being uplifting enough. I think there's so much to look forward to. This is like the first half of your life. That's the way to think about it. You think? Yeah. You think I've got another 50 in me? Definitely. Even despite the lack of fitness? Definitely. All right. I'll hold you to that. You're on. If I drop dead before 100, I'm coming for you. Money back guarantee. Now, shall we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. I feel like this is a fun birthday episode for me. Definitely. Uh, Because this week we are talking about supporting artists. Art and creativity, definitely a reason to be cheerful. But how do artists make a living? And this week we're looking at how we can best support artists to be creative, produce great work and benefit all of us, uh, all at the same time as making sure that they're paid a decent wage for what they do. Uh, So we're going to be looking at Ireland's announcement of a new basic income scheme and asking some big questions about how we value art, because it's not just its economic value or certainly not just its immediate economic value. And we're going to be speaking to Eliza Easton from the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Centre, to Noel Kelly from Visual Artists Island, and to Love Sega, who is a musician and artist, formerly of Clean Bandit, who is now artist-in-residence at the Philharmonia Orchestra. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? My friend Susie took me to see Elton John last week. Oh, wow. It's fantastic. What? And it was at the O2, was it? It was, yeah. I went on a boat. Amazing. That used to always be my hack to beat the queues. Yeah. For getting to the O2. Well, the boat now seems to stop everywhere. It's like a yeah. Dogger Bank and German Bite en route. Mm. So it didn't really work. Well, like a shipping forecast. Yeah. Yeah, uh. yeah. It felt like that. But yeah, it was great. And what I loved about it was so many people not myself, sadly, really uh, got into spirit of it by going in some version of Elton John fancy dress. What was your, what's your favourite Elton John song? I, I like Don't Let the Sun Go Down, Tiny Dancer's oh. great. I've got um, a real soft spot for I'm Still Standing because it was yeah. one of the first songs that Gene liked. But he, he was fantastic, really good. Well, I'm hoping to see him at Glasgow. Oh, yes. Are you supporting? I may be performing at Glasgow. With your guitar? No. Blowing in the wind? No. What's Uh, your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is culinary. Oh. When I was seven, my family lived in America and we went to a Chinese restaurant called the Hunan Restaurant in somewhere. We were living in a place called Newton, Massachusetts, and it was somewhere out somewhere near Newton. I can't quite, I'm not sure exactly where. No, and, no, we need to spend more time on that. We and they to... made, now I'm hoping one of our listeners might respond. Maybe in your 50s, you'll become a bit more, <laughs> a, bit less of a, a bit less of a bloody curmudgeon. Uh, um, and the, I, the thing I used to absolutely love was we used to have something called moo shoe chicken, which was sort of stir fried chicken with like bean sprouts and so on. You'd roll them up and put them in the pancake. Oh. Anyway, I made mushu chicken for my family on Saturday and it was an absolute hit. Did you toss the pancakes? Well, no, I bought the pancakes in advance. Oh, come on. Well, did you come on? I didn't buy enough pancakes. But anyway, leave that to one side. There's sort of always room for improvement. But honestly, it was like total mega success. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start the conversation by talking to Deputy Director of the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Centre, Eliza Easton. Hello. Hello. Long job title. You must need a small font on your business cards. Oh, I know. It's not even the whole job title, but let's not, <laughs> let's not go into that. <laughs> the conversation we're having today is about how we support 
artists. And I thought maybe it was important to start by just getting a sense of who might fall under that umbrella of artists. Who are we talking about? It's really difficult when we're thinking about artists to work out who in any given situation we want to talk about. Of course, people who work in film or design might consider themselves artists. Then there are people who do what we would very obviously consider art, sort of you know, visual artists, who might do commercial work, which we would consider to be less artistic. Broadly, there are two definitions that I think about. One is the whole creative industries. And so that includes everyone who's doing things from like almost software design, games, advertising, design, film, fashion. So really broad group there. But then, you know, in some of my work, I am thinking about people who are in receipt of public funding. And so there's a particular sort of public good to their work. And in those cases, I might be thinking more about some bits of film, performing arts, visual arts, that sort of category, both those working on their own and the kind of institutions that support them. But is is it kind of hard to quantify those people who perhaps make a, a significant contribution to our culture But it's not like a a computer game, for example, where there's sort of measurable commercial metrics to it. Do you mean like podcasters, for example? (laughs) I consider us very much artists. Yeah, you you can join definitely in the creative (laughs) industries at the very least. Artists, I don't know, we'd have to have a debate. That's not for me to say. (laughs) But I think it's a really good question. And I suppose that most people aren't doing all public work or all commercial work. So even within people's own careers, they're sort of balancing it out. But the fact you talked a little bit about how, you know, these people are hard to see, hard to quantify. I think that's something that we learned pretty drastically during the the COVID pandemic, when actually it was really hard for government to find those people and get them the support. We actually in the UK have a really good sense of artistic institutions and our variety of arts councils were complete godsends in being able to distribute the huge cultural recovery fund, which absolutely saved the sector. But when it came to the individuals who are kind of working between the commercial and publicly funded spaces, it was really hard to find them. And that is because they're freelancers. We're bad in the UK at kind of understanding the freelance economy. But as you say, it's also because they don't fit neatly in sort of one public funded category or one commercial category. So is that the really kind of hidden gap maybe here, which is around the self-employed? Because that did come through a lot in the pandemic, didn't it? The, the, yeah. the self-employed, how many people were self-employed, how many people were freelance? That's right. And and so across the creative industries, it's about a third of freelance, so way higher than the UK economy. Um, But then when you get to the bits that we're talking about, the kind of arts, it's about 70%. So this is an overwhelmingly freelance sort of part of the economy. What our work has found is that basically government doesn't know who freelancers are. And that means that in almost every single policy area, they get left out. I mean, just to add sort of more misery into your cheerful bucket, to talk about the last 10 years of the arts, public investment in the arts has fallen by about 20%. That's in England, driven by a fall across all the nations, actually, in in local authority investment. All the artists who worked in their local communities are far, far less funded than they were. That's in comparison to countries like Germany, where real-term spend has increased. So you've got this 20% public spend cut, You've got COVID and then you also have Brexit. So people who used to tour are finding it either impossible or much more expensive to tour. So, 
you know, there are a big set of issues facing facing the sector. But I would say that in terms of policy solutions, actually the hidden solution is around understanding freelancers. So, so you mentioned this decline in the, the last 10 years. Can we talk a bit about how we've done historically in yeah. this country for supporting artists? That could be governments, public institutions. And tell us about the Enterprise Allowance scheme. Yeah. It seems to have been a hidden sort of benefit to the art, not necessarily intentional. No, no. And actually, I would say that the, the history of arts investment globally and in the UK has been a mixture of really great sort of pioneering investments by people who 100% get the sector and then accidental investments. So Churchill and kind of interwar and then post-war period was massively important for the arts. So going back to the 30s, 40s, you have the British Council set up in the 30s. You have the Committee for Encouragement of Music and the Arts, which became the kind of UK Arts Council and then all the different National Arts Councils in the 40s, which was actually chaired by John Maynard Keynes to give a sense of how important this was understood as being in terms of the economy until his death. He chaired what? What did he chair? The Committee for Encouragement of Music and the Arts. So that's kind of the origin of the Arts Councils. So, you know, we have totally lost our way when it comes to this stuff being core to how we understand the economy. But Keynes really got it. And then fast forward to the 80s. So there was this enterprise allowance scheme. And as you say, this is totally the hidden gem when it comes to um, artistic support. And you think about really successful fashion brands, visual artists, I mean, even Turner Prize winners. Tracy Emin included, I think. Is that right? Yeah. And Jeremy Della. And yeah, there's a great list of, of beneficiaries, but they all got 40 quid a week to get off the dolls, set up their own businesses. And of course, that was perfect for this highly freelance sector. So interesting. So actually, it became a really important way of starting creative businesses. And you will meet so many people today who will put everything down to the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. Now, over time, although there's been versions of it, they've all changed and they've changed what you need to do. And they certainly haven't thought about long-term freelance businesses. They certainly aren't focused on the creative businesses. And so you've lost a lot of the benefits. But that's kind of got us to where we are today, which is, I would say, these critical moments of massive post-war investment, total visionary stuff, actually about the arts. And then stuff which was more about enterprise, but was appropriate for freelancers and self-employed. I'm sure I'll get lots of people saying, what about this? What about that? But those are some critical historical moments. And talk to us, Eliza, about the challenges of supporting individual artists, because presumably different people have different views about what art should get subsidised. What's the justification for doing it? How do you think about all that? First of all, I'd say that policymakers have pretty much always subsidised the arts. And I'm talking about, you know, the Medicis or the Tsars in Russia as much as like the royal family, as much as I'm talking about recent policymakers. So patronage of sorts of the arts has has just been absolutely critical. It's important to remember, it doesn't always have to be sort of liberal democracies. But I think that when we're thinking about investment in the arts and patrons would have totally got this intuitively, we've got to think about what do we actually want those pieces of art for? So I mentioned the local authority cuts. Well, I had a really interesting speech by an academic recently who said, who but local authorities realises that actually a not particularly extraordinary local clock tower has become massively important in terms of how, say, a village sees itself. It is the core meeting place that's so critical. And, And I think that really breaks down why 
local authority spend on the arts may look entirely different to kind of arts council spend on big kind of globally impactful projects. So there are all kinds of different ways we invest in the arts. And it's a little bit like research and development. If we try to get a single metric, we totally devalue what the arts can do. But some of the really great schemes that we've seen, and we might talk about the Republic of Ireland's uh, kind of idea of basic income for artists, but also the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, some of them, some of the things that have been most successful have actually not necessarily made a judgment on the quality of the individual art. They've just given some money to lots of different artists, some of whom have become wildly successful and others who haven't. But in the same way, we wouldn't think about economic investment across different industries as needing to have a single kind of lever. We kind of have to think the same about the arts. It has to be a little bit more kind of ambitious than that. And are there other countries where similar things have been tried or where you look to as a, as a utopia with this stuff? A lot of this stuff is based on the general kind of social provisions that those countries offer. So, for example, Norway is incredibly generous to its artists as well as lots of other people. But I don't think we can copy and paste into the UK what Norway is doing. I don't think it would work. I'm fascinated by how many of the schemes that really work come from kind of moments of crisis. So Franklin Roosevelt's uh, New Deal included a federal arts project, and that basically funded something like 400,000 easel paintings, murals, prints, posters, renderings, and actually became kind of like the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, part of a new emerging group of incredibly successful US artists. Like it was really critical to the US art scene. And I think one of the things that that reassures me is when that happened, there was a poll looking at which bits of the New Deal people hated the most and which bits they loved the most. And and I, I understand that the Federal Art Project came top of both. So it was both the most hated and the most loved, which is often (laughs) how investment in this sort of area goes. And then in France, they have a really long-standing project, which which I'm quite interested in, which I'm going to butcher with my French accent, but the Intermittent du Spectacle. And basically that understands that artists who are working in shows particularly, so it's really aimed at a kind of performance or people around that makeup artists, set designers, will have periods where they're not working. And so whilst in other industries in France, freelancers don't get unemployment benefit, actually, if you have done a certain amount of time over a year and you sort of get stamped for that time, you qualify for unemployment benefit through this very particular scheme. Last question, Eliza, on the podcast we have something called the Jeffocracy, where <laughs> Jeff is the benign ruler. I'm a fan of the Jeffocracy. Oh, I follow you right? the Jeffocracy. Okay. Do you hear that? <laughs> Speak for yourself. Speak for yourself. If we made you the Minister for Supporting the Arts or for really whatever title you wanted, what's the first thing you would do? Yeah, absolutely. First thing is I'm probably going to put in a freelance test amongst government policies on employment. So I don't want to see any more apprenticeship levies introduced and then spend three years trying to work with government to make it right. Although that has happened. It's a lot better now. So, yeah, putting in a freelance test straight away. I also we've got to find something to replace that lost local authority funding. 
you're probably going to have to start looking at that to make sure that locally people can invest in arts and culture that's really important to them within their region or within their local authorities. Well, did she get the job? In your yeah, I mean, my official residence, it's, it's <laughs> going to be bedecked with wonderful murals. new art, murals. You know, we're, we're, we're big on you. the creative industries. I mean, I dread to think what Jeff's Mar-a-Lago is going to be like. Yeah. Where is your Mar-a-Lago going to be? At Bournemouth, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Lovely. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I do, I, I do feel sorry for Bournemouth that you're going to try and take it over <laughs> with a Mar-a-Lago. Eliza, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. To carry on the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we are joined from Ireland by Noel Kelly, who is Chief Executive Officer and Director of Visual Arts Ireland. Noel, thanks so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Tell us a little bit about what you do. First of all, we're an All-Ireland body, which means that we represent artists both in the Republic of Ireland and in Northern Ireland. It makes life very interesting, as you can imagine. We advocate in terms of policies to support them in their careers, but also then we provide a range of uh, services directly to them, which basically are designed so that they can enhance their professional lives. And I think about a year ago, the Department of Tourism, Culture and Arts announced these plans to set up a a basic income for the arts pilot. So tell us a bit more about that. How many people are involved in it? How much does it pay? Well, first of all, it has been part of various agendas and various policies for quite a substantial amount of time. We are very lucky that the Minister for Tourism, Culture, Arts, Scale Talk, Sports and the Media, to give it its full title. Minister Martin took quite a serious view on the basic income for artists. Um, It was coming on the back of the pandemic, but also work had been done before that because we were looking at individual artists who quite a large percentage at one stage, over 68%, were living under the poverty threshold. So... Her department looked at it from the point of view, what can be done? Now, this is also with a series of measures that happened throughout the pandemic and also, you know, funding to the arts significantly increased in the Republic. So this was a very fruitful relationship, but also a really sort of helpful environment to roll out this scheme. So it's a pilot scheme, first of all. It's a three-year pilot. It is aimed specifically at artists. So it's also an opportunity for the government to look at how this that type of scheme can actually work in a broader sense. 
It's €350 a week. To be eligible was quite a long conversation. As you can imagine, when you're going to roll something like this out, word gets out on the street, everybody wants to be in. Everybody is suddenly defining themselves. Well, I'm an artist. You know, I had a creative thought in the bath this morning. Um, I'm an artist. And you kind of go, well, Mm. That's what I say to Jeff quite a lot, actually. No. <laughs> when we're in the bath together, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what I often if say. If you to don't him. mind, I'm just going to park that image because yeah, really, yeah, I'm going to park it. You want to paint it? <laughs> I'm, par- I'm parking it as well, actually. Yeah, I'm not sure yeah. if it's durational or participatory, but you know, okay. yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so the it was who is an artist was first of all. So this is when uh, the department had quite extensive consultations with representative and advocacy bodies such as ours to look at how would we recognize an artist. It was very clear there are certain criteria, but in other art forms, it may not be as clear. And Noel, can I just ask you a prior question? This this basic income scheme, it arises a kind of grassroots kind of request from the artistic community. Yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, there have been numerous advocacy moments on it. I mean, over the years, there have been much discussion quite honest discussion as well as to look at the benefits, but also to look at some of the pitfalls that may exist with it in other countries. But then the government had a number of task forces and working groups. And one of the primary uh, task forces, this came out in the top three recommendations. Right. And this is something that you, Vigil Artists Island, wanted too, yeah? Yeah. I mean, we would be obviously advocating that artists' incomes increase. Now, You know, we are also very much research based. So therefore, it wasn't just sort of screaming at their door, sort of going, oh, please give us this. It was actually going and saying, look, international research has shown how this will work. International research has also shown how there are some pitfalls in this. So therefore, and I believe that's why it has been important to have the pilot. And how many years in are we now? We're probably in about six or seven months. Right. So, look, I, we don't want to sort of get you to kind of, you know, get ahead of your skis, as the Americans would say, but give us a little bit of a taster of how it's going. There were over 9,000 applications. 2,000 artists were selected, and there are artists across art, all art forms, visual arts, even artists working in film, even circus artists were included in it. It was really yeah. to include as many yeah. as possible forms. And then an additional 1,000 were selected, but not to receive the basic income. So 2,000 were chosen to receive the basic income and 1,000 were selected as a control group. So first of all, on the very positive side, we have had a number of artists, a number of members coming to us saying that it has made a significant difference. It is not a large enough amount of money for people to sit back on and then just sort of say, you know, fabulous, darling, I'm an artist. Actually, you know, you have to top it up in order to have a lifestyle. That has really helped people, you know, to give them a basis. Now, there are some areas of concern and there are some issues. Because the basic income is coming from the specific department, the changes in broader legislation have not been possible Because of the interaction with other benefits, for example. Exactly. So, for example, it is income. So, first of all, it is definitely income. It's taxable income. So, if you have carer allowance or you have a medical card or, you know, it may impact on that. And how has it gone down with the public? 
we were quite surprised with the general population. We like we really did expect it to be attacked. Now there has been a certain amount of naysaying from people who feel that there is, uh, you know, the arts is in the latest activity, but it's been minimal. The general population actually were really quite supportive, and I always have the taxi driver test. You know, chatting to a taxi driver, what do you think? And he said, well, do you know what? Isn't it great that these people who have nothing are getting something? But as I say, you know, it has also fed into other political agendas, which, you know, tabloid media would try and exploit. But it's been minimal. And Noel, tell us this. You said earlier that you were inspired by in the research phase of this before it came in about what other countries had done. Is there a country you'd point to, you know, or a historical moment you'd point to, which you think could give us inspiration? Well, I think the first thing is that, you know, in speaking to people about the research, it has been called many different things in other countries. So it was, it may not be called basic income. There are another level of these bursaries or career supports in Finland, in the Netherlands and so on. So we were looking very closely at some of these because we could see where some of the conditions where people were eligible, they got it, but they actually didn't continue in their practice. So it was important to kind of protect the pilot against that sort of negative impact because it's in all our interest for the pilot to work. Um, and we haven't actually seen that, you know, here, but it's something we're conscious of. It's actually, it's interesting because some countries then have sort of like pulled back as a result of that when they could see that creativity was actually suffering rather than sort of encouraged. But, you know, once again, that's something that we really wanted to take into consideration when we were you know, in part of the consultations on, on this one. And and does it need to be, really, do governments need to be thinking of it as something that sits within a broader cultural focus? The arts are part of an ecosystem. So there's an ecosystem within the arts, and then there's the broader ecosystem. If I take, you know, my other hat as the representative organization for Northern Ireland, we have just had a series of ongoing cuts to the cultural sector with successive governments and successive policies. We have lost the dedicated department, the Department of Cultural Arts and Leisure. The annual budget is consistently cut. Basic income has to sit within a true mission on behalf of a government to say it should be only one level of support. An artist gains income by making an exhibition, by undertaking commissions. But an artist also has a need to experiment and experiment and fail. And we give them permission to fail because that's all part of the creative process. The supports need to be in place at all levels for that. And, you know, the arts councils um, play a certain role as a primary funding body, but can they get to the absolute grassroots level? The answer is no, because it's a competitive environment and therefore they will always have their own criteria. And therefore, the impact on the individual artist is they are living under the poverty threshold while still trying to remain creative, but not supported in a meaningful way. So we're losing the creativity by not realizing that the ecosystem is fragile 
and it has been made more fragile by the decrease in investment. Every politician loves standing in front of a painting or a sculpture. You know, it's almost as good as kissing a baby. Ed loves standing in a high-vis vest in front of a sculpture kissing a baby. That exactly. would be your dream. Perfect yeah. photo opportunity. <laughs> there you go. Well, Ed, the next time you do it, yeah. we have a phrase here in Visual Artists yeah. Ireland. Ask, has the artist been paid? That's a good question to ask. Noel, we're really interested by what you've said. We're interested by the experiment. We'd love to... Yeah, come, come back come and back. tell us, come when, back and tell us a bit more... How uh, it's going. ...in terms of results. Noel Kelly, a visual artist, Ireland, thank you so much for joining us. A great pleasure. We're going to finish off by talking to musician and artist in residence at the Royal Festival Hall's Philharmonia Orchestra. Also founder member and original lead singer and songwriter in Clean Bandit, Love Sega. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you both. Hi. Thanks for, for taking the time. And um, can we just start talking a little bit about you and how you got into music? So this episode really is about artists and supporting artists' livelihoods. What was that like for you when you were trying to break into it? Well, it's interesting because um, there was some recent advice for people to give up the creative arts to go into cyber and such like. I was actually a, a chemical engineer, so I was studying engineering at university wow. and then switched over to music. And I think it was in, an, in a natural way. I didn't know, like most people, I didn't know that you could actually be paid to write songs. I didn't know that you could have a burgeoning career without going down these different commercial routes. So at university, yep, started this band Clean Bandit with my other university friends, but then I left to do a PhD, which maybe was not the wisest, or maybe it was, depends how you look at it. Um, so yeah. What was your PhD in? It was in laser analytics. Wow. And now you're the artist in residence at the Royal Festival Hall's Philharmonia Orchestra. Tell us what that involves. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a bit of a dream because... I'm a fan of music. So I always love playing with musicians. That's the best thing, playing with musicians and being on a stage. There's a big jump to get to artists in residence, but I think it was recognition where Philharmonia, they've got, it's a world-class orchestra and you've got some of the best musicians that this country, Europe and the world has seen. But they want to reach out to other artists, people who are doing something different. And they saw the work I was doing as a solo artist and also having an environmental slant to some of my work more recently. And they say, OK, how do we bring this person in to energize us as a um, orchestra and as creatives, as musicians as well? And so for me, I just get to play with amazing Musicians. So you were you actually you do singing and songwriting with them, the Philharmonia. Yeah. So for this season, they said, okay, you can have twelve musicians who can have these creative sessions where you can do whatever you want. So I jumped in with them, and it's really interesting how music and the arts is really subdivided. Um, so you're a classical musician, you're a jazz musician, you're a pop yeah. musician, you're you know you're a rapper over here. Whereas for me, I just see it as you're an individual making music. So I was going in there and saying, look, this is how I perform as an artist. And this is how I use my voice and creativity to get a message across. And I'm trying to treat you not as 12 musicians sitting behind a desk, as 12 individual artists. So it was a chance for them to tell me about the tuba, tell me about the harp, tell me about the timpani. And then for for me to then say, okay, well, we're going to have a performance at Festival Hall in, in the Claw Ballroom on, in June. We're going to have that. But then I want all of you, instead of sitting down as if in, and looking to the conductor, we're going to perform out as if we're a band performing to a crowd. As well as being the artist in residence at the Philharmonia, you were also awarded the Arts Foundation Music for Change Fellowship in 2022. Perhaps you can tell us about that and about how these kinds of 
residencies or fellowships can help support creativity and artists? Yeah, I mean, that was a great honour as, as well, because with my solo career with music, I've seen the pop side of music, but then I've, there's also another more radical side of music. It's not so prominent now. So that means that there's not so much money behind it. And if it's not quote unquote commercially viable, it can be a bit difficult. But then I thought, okay, let me try and use music to be a roving reporter of what's happening in the environment, in communities. Then when you get something like the Arts Foundation to come along and the Arts Foundation, they give fellowships across the arts. And in the past, they've given it to Wayne McGregor, who is the choreographer at Royal Ballet, Alice Oswald, Asif Kapadia, who did the Amy Winehouse films and everything like that. So then for them to see what I'm doing and then say, actually, we see how you're using music and then trying to use that for change, um, especially with your environmental and your social um, justice work. So we think you're on the right path. So sometimes people need a pat on the back or some motivation to say, OK, yeah, you're on the right path. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep um, collaborating, doing stuff in art galleries, keep doing stuff with communities, keep doing all of these different things. And then those fellowships and the Arts Foundation is great for them to support. And beyond a pat on the back, talk to us a little bit about the, the idea of supporting artists' income. So we just talked to Noel Kelly about uh, Ireland's basic income scheme for, for the arts. I think with music specifically, but not, not just music, actually, there, there can be a view that a, a romanticization of the, the, the struggling artist and, and that somehow an impoverishment is the thing that creates good art. Why is that wrong? Well, I mean, you have the struggling artists, but then it's interesting because back then, um, some of these artists still had a dole. They still had some money which you could actually live on. So if we look at in terms of a basic income, what people need, you want your artists, you want your your superstar, you want your creative, your wacky creative. You don't want them to feel they have to be a delivery driver for 12 hours of the day. Because then how are they then making that next piece of art or the next show, which is then going to go internationally? And I think it's important, like you say, not to have the pat on the back. You need to support artists to do whatever they want to do rather than just what's commercially viable. Because what's interesting is the commercially viable thing is the thing which sounds like the previous thing, but it's just slightly different. Whereas what we need is that completely transformative type of thing. Like when you look at Kate Bush or when you look at Bohemian Rhapsody, where you look Freddie Mercury, he was baggage handler. And then it's like, okay, well... How do I come up with a song which they play three minute songs? No, it's going to be six minutes. You want those radicals and you want radicals in music. I'm from London. I'm in South London. But we want to we need to hear these stories from people in South Wales. Okay, what are they talking about in South Wales? What are they talking about in Newcastle? What are they talking about in Glasgow? And so you need to support people. And I think especially now more than ever, it should be the easiest time to say, let's give a basic income to people to actually create whatever they want, to observe their communities whilst they're in the communities. They don't need to move. Now we've got the internet to distribute our music. The cost of recording gear has come right down. Let's just give people some decency to then say, look, here's some money so you can live, so you can put the heating on. You can actually record your music. You can afford to pay a band. So for them to have an income, rather than just say, okay, we'll leave it to the market, because what does the market necessarily do? And as a society, don't we deserve more? Don't we deserve more voices? And now we've got social media where people can actually promote themselves. So you don't need that much money to support an artist starting up, but they need some money. And there's a, there's a class element to that as well, isn't there? Because Massively. If, if that income is there, it stops the arts being the pursuit of rich people who can keep a roof over their heads. Yeah, 
Yeah, precisely. And then when you look at, for instance, when I was growing up at university, um, his, like the Arctic monkeys, it seems single-handedly with Sheffield, when you see how... They were Gordon Brown's favourite, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> so Arctic monkeys, it seemed suddenly, I had a reason being from London, I met people from Sheffield, they're like, oh yeah, we've got this band and they're going to be absolutely massive. And you're like, oh, okay, okay, what's going on? And then they made you want to look at, well, okay, what's happening in Sheffield? So then you start to bridge these north-south divides and everything and then they're so massive they can then support their local community they can support their local venues it's quite striking that the climate crisis is a big part of your work i think i'm right in saying that the the culmination of your artist in residence time at the philharmonia is is going to be on thursday the 8th of june 6 p.m for those who are interested tell us a little bit about why it's so important to you and what you're going to be doing uh, in june yeah, so it's it's really interesting. So I fell into this area of work mainly because of COVID, just to be completely blunt, just because touring stopped, everything stopped as a performer. So I had no income whatsoever. And then there was um, one commission that came along from Julie's Bicycle and Arts Admin, where they wanted to get voices from marginalised groups talking about climate crisis and using their art. So I said, I'm a singer. I live on the South Circular and as a black person, I, the story of Ella Adu Kissy Debra, she went to a primary school just off the South Circular. I went to a primary school just off a South Circular. So she's a nine-year-old girl who passed away in 2013 because of um, air pollution. And her mother, Rosamond, has been campaigning tirelessly to get air pollution on her death certificate. So then I wrote just a song and I made a video just about Lewisham, because before I was touring and performing in all these different spaces, but I hadn't spoken to my community or spoken and represented Lewisham. And Lewisham, I don't know if anyone's seen Lewisham in any films or read Lewisham anywhere, but it doesn't appear too often. So I thought, look, let me make a song and a video showing different people of colour saying, it's our world fight for air. Do we really care? Yeah. And just by making a video, making it colourful and just showing, look, Different people would like to be in the climate crisis. And it's a record in time to say, yeah, they try to do something. Can I ask you, it's sort of a big question about how we could be better in this country about communicating the value of culture. So I don't know how many of your neighbours on the South Circular have a connection with the Royal Festival Hall's Philharmonia Orchestra. I certainly, growing up, thought that that type of institution was was lofty and for other people. What else could we be doing to make culture a thing that is for for everyone? Well, I think it's giving these opportunities and it's putting money behind it. On Earth Day last year at National Gallery, they gave me their three biggest rooms to do a performance piece talking about sustainable social housing. I did workshop and again, trying to get young people 18 to 35 into an institution like the National Gallery. And I had black squatters talk about the history of black squatting. I had experts from Nesta talking about heat pumps. I had um, B Corps architects talking about these different things. How fantastic. So yeah, so luckily I've got, I made videos for these. So they're on my YouTube. You can see little highlights. And working with the National Gallery, I never would have thought when I was just trying to make some songs to, and this is the power of creativity and music. I never thought it would have given me this opportunity. But then you then do a performance on Earth Day in the evening, and then you see the regulars from the National Gallery, who are a certain demographic, older white demographic. Then you've got black squatters coming in there, not realizing that, you know, their voices are being played. And then a black ballet, it was all black cast as well. So black ballerina and body popper. Amazing. So again, it just shows where, yes, we need to the question is we've got these spaces. How we use them. We've got these institutions. The difference is, is what are we doing with them now? 
So for me, that's what I'm trying to do. I'd never worked in South Bank at all. I'd gone past on the train every day of my life almost. But then they're like, okay, come in. And then if other people see me going and they trust me from the community and I'm giving the opportunity to them, then they're like, okay, that that makes sense. You're actually doing the work of bringing people in. It generates money for the gallery, the area, everything else around it. And then we're having more fun. That's what we need to do. We, we need to have fun. Definitely. Sega, if people want to come to your performance at the end of your artist in residence, can they do that? Yeah, yeah. And the good thing is, it's um, because it's in the Claw Ballroom, it's free. Anyone can come along. 6pm and it's Thursday. Thursday the 8th of June. Thursday the 8th of June. Yeah, Royal Festival Hall, South Bank. Well, Sega, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, meet you and to talk to you. Congratulations on your work. It's incredibly inspiring. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, I love that episode. I love that. I love that conversation. Incredibly inspiring, yeah. wasn't it? Who knew about the enterprise allowance scheme? I did actually. Oh, right. <laughs> it's one of those weird things, and it is interesting that it was accidental. I don't think it was Mrs. Artist. Thatcher's intention. No, to absolutely not. Subsidise lots of artists. No, but I think the point of that really is this universal element to it. You don't necessarily want to be making artists jump through too many hoops, trying to quantify whether an individual artist is going to turn a profit, but looking at the long-term economic impact, but also social impact. And these things are are difficult to measure, but creativity has such an impact on the idea of possibility and social mobility and just identity as well. I see it all the time in Manchester. That city has a sense of itself. Yeah. That's extremely strong for lots of reasons, but not insignificant in that is is the importance of culture. Totally. And um, I loved hearing about what was happening in Ireland. Yes. I mean, it is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it feels like one to follow and see what the impact will be. It's such a sort of interesting idea. And it, it felt a little bit like the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. And also a bit like UBI, but specifically for yeah, artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Sega, I thought, was just really Fantastic. Yes. I just think the sort of what's the right way to put this is sort of bringing together different parts of the arts that wouldn't necessarily normally connect. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting because I think there are value judgments made about what's high culture and what's low culture. And it's, it's, it's all art. It's all expression. I really like the fact that supporting artists from less wealthy, more diverse backgrounds opens up these national cultural institutions, which I think... Can seem very out of reach, as you said. Yeah, I I never thought any of those places were for me. And and here in Sega or um, the work that Stuart Murphy did at the English National Opera recently, there's no reason that these things can't be for everybody. And also it's that thing, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Mm. And that's what he's sort of breaking down. And then bringing those stories from his community and his life into those spaces. It's brilliant. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, ho-ho, we're in the 50-year-old outro. Ooh, yeah, middle-aged outro. Middle-aged outro. 
It's good that we're sort of entering the same generation, I think. Oh, we're very much not the same generation. You're a boomer. I'm Gen X. I mean, that's not... But I think you're that, sort that, of... That I think change. No, but I think you're done over now. You can't really carry on claiming you're a different generation, can you? you I just, don't think your generation no, think changes. Like, no, but I think it's just sort of you just tipped it. You know what I mean? I just, I've d- definitely tipped into my 50s. I can't deny that. I mean, I could. But I think if you're Wikipedia, 49 but... and I'm 53, yes. you can sort of say it's different yes. generationally. Yes. If you're 50 and I'm 50, it just doesn't... Do yeah, you, I mean, I isn't, that, isn't that the truth? I'm sorry to rub it in. I'm, I'm just... going to find a way. I'll, I'll find a way. <laughs> well, you're much more, maybe you're more in touch with popular culture, so that gives you a sort of call. That's me up. on my skateboard down the uh, discos. Yeah. Is there any casual knitwear that I need to be embracing in my 50s? You, you do a good line in knitwear. You're, not... you're saying I already look dressed like I'm in my 50s anyway, is, is, is what you're skirting around saying. I don't think that the dressing is going to be a challenge. Okay. I think you're already there. Oh, so, uh, You've uh, already got ahead it. Ahead of my time. You've got it. Um, any, any changes in the underwear department I need to be thinking about? <laughs> Definitely I not. don't know. Do you need extra support? <laughs> I'm not going to give you advice on that. You'll have to make your own decisions on that. I've been with the boxer brief for some years now. I don't need to adjust that. You don't. Budgie smugglers. No, you do. Okay. You're good as you are. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Good to know. In every respect. <laughs> Shall we thank our guests? Yes. Thanks to Eliza Easton, Noel Kelly, and Love Sega. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. Supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the eye dents. Ed Seed composed the music, and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd at 50. And these have been middle-aged. Reasons to be cheerful. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 